Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? Hope everyone's doing well. Just wanted to uh, do some quick house cleaning, let people know. Go to ChampagneSharks.com and you get access to all the links related to Champagne Sharks. You can go there and find it all. And you can find where we are on social media, our products, all that stuff. Also, Patreon benefits, which includes Discord server, book club night, movie night discussions, show notes, newsletter, and most importantly, bonus episodes. So definitely become a patron for $5 a month at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks. And without further ado, here is the episode. Take care. You've been writing a lot of, uh, you've been on a tear lately. Like I feel like uh, since we were supposed to do it last week. Uh, I had two articles I was looking at, and then I looked again today, and I saw like so many more. I didn't even have a chance to to read them, but I didn't want to. I didn't want to postpone it again, so nah, I just no, figured no, yes. we just keep going. But the one that I uh, really liked was the publishing world is like Firefest because <laughs> we were a friend of mine, and I had some people talk about it too on on the show. We were trying to figure out exactly like okay with Walmart, right? Mm-hmm. Or with these different things, you know. You hear these different models about how different things could be so cheap. Like Amazon started out so cheap because they just wanted to gain market share. And it took a couple of years to be profitable. Or Walmart, uh, some people speculate that they just have a low price that they'll sell at. And then it's up to the person who's uh, selling to Walmart, to the Walmart buyer, to find a way to make a profit, you know, selling at that rate or whatever. So they... um have their cut or whatever and then they're like okay you use a sweatshop you use whatever you have to do (laughs) you use the legal immigrants whatever to make this price profitable to you some places i know have like lost leaders so it's like for example with record companies it's um it's this idea that we have jazz and these different things for prestige and you know for awards and stuff but um we make the money on like britney spears and justin justin timberlake to use you know dated examples Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. that stuff kind of subsidizes the other stuff but what Mm -hmm. we were trying to figure out is there's a whole cottage industry especially like in publishing uh but it's it's in prestige and streaming tv as well which nowadays the two industries are almost arm in arm like in lockstep like basically i feel like books are just created now to be option for streaming shows basically yes yes yeah. YA fiction um you know on the podcast we were talking about this on the podcast with plan a and we were all talking about the fact that so much of YA fiction now for instance is actually written you can tell is written to be easily modified to yes. screenplays because there's so much dialogue i read this and i go dude stop talking there's so no much- description no there's no evocative literature there's no excellent prose there's nothing it's just people being snappy 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 with each and other no interiority no like, interiority there's yeah. no uh internal thought process no, like, like no. those old novels would have like yes five six ten pages of just yeah. someone's thoughts and yeah. oh no and, you're not allowed meditations. to yeah, yeah, that you don't see any of that. But what we're trying to figure out is we can't figure out where the money's coming from. There's no mm-hmm. side in the, like we had some theories, mm-hmm. you know, like maybe they make it on the option rights later, or maybe yeah. there's a secondary economy of like speaking. I don't know if you know what a 360 deal is in, in music. Do you know what a 360 deal is in music? Where no, tell me, I want one. <laughs> in, oh, okay. In oh no, no, you don't want a 360. <laughs> I don't. Deal. Okay. Okay. No, a three. It sounds good though. But what a 360 <laughs> deal is is that record companies started signing people under this new thing called a 360 deal. What the 360 deal is, 360 is in 360 degrees. As in, mm. we get a piece of everything on uh, your touring. Whoa. Everything. Oh, I've you heard do. of this. Yes, I heard of this because that's exactly what fucked over the Dixie Tricks when they were the Dixie Tricks mm, years ago. That's why they only made. I think that's why so many artists. Right. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I no, just realized. Fine. Yeah, like I think that's why so many artists. Like I think what's her name, uh, Tony Braxton, for instance, right, uh, made millions and millions for her record companies or company, and then but her act, her own earnings was something like you know. Twelve thousand or something ridiculous like that. So apparently that's because, and not only that, apparently you also have to pay for things like the. the it's in the artist contract that yes, you have to contract. pay things like you know the the fees for uh, the musicians and the food and everything. So you're actually <laughs> as the artist are charged for literally everything that yeah, goes pr- into the record making. Promotions, yeah. yes, promotions everything. Too, yeah, which is ridiculous. 
realize I will give the, I'm sure the book industry will someday pivot to that model, but, but it's so fucking exploitative. So, yeah. so, so check this out. There's performances, merchandise, record sales, appearances. <laughs> so you appear places, right. they get a cut of your appearance fee. Jesus. Uh, the music publishing and even endorsements. Right. If you get like endorsement Whoa. deals, they get uh, some of that. And we were trying to figure out, do the publishing houses get any cut of mm-hmm. other things so, that these hot authors do? Like, you know what I mean? Uh, like, No. So it depends on your contract and it depends on what kind of an agent you have who will look out for your interests. So that's one good thing is if you have an agent who's looking out for your interests, they will scour, you know, the contract with, with a fine tooth comb. But basically, it really does depend on your contract, actually. Uh, but it's not as bad as what seems to be happening in the music industry. No. I mean, they might so there will be um clauses about um you know royalties coming from anything like you might an entertainment deal for instance or but that's and that's all then you have the contract with your agent as well years ago i signed uh, with another agent not my current one and who came from a, one of those large publishing houses and i had to have you know i had an outside lawyer look at this as well and it was all kosher but it was also extremely granular you know so for instance if someone came up with a doll with my likeness right and how, what would what would the share of my profits be versus my agent and then my agent when he went into that deal with some entertainment company would then negotiate what the entertainment company gets versus what we get etc so there is a granularity a lot depends on you know what your contract looks like it can vary a fair amount but i have never heard that's also because books until recently again you know because as you and i have just said you know it really nowadays a lot of books are straight to tv right straight to netflix i mean this is the dream right for every oh yeah right it's it's the dream is i will write a book and look i will wholeheartedly despite my enormous contempt for netflix that i've articulated in other places i will wholeheartedly say if netflix comes to me with a million dollar deal i'll be like look my fans know what the difference between a book and a show is. Take the damn book. Do what you want with it. Just give me shit tons of money, right? So everyone dreams of that Netflix deal. So there is, that is the big change even in the last, I would say, not even decade. I would say at, at the speed of lightning, things have changed even in just the last five years. Because as you and I both know, right? Like the whole, there. I know of someone, for instance, who is literary, literally a literary agent for a uh, for an entertainment company like that her job is to actually go find books that can be turned into um, you know series or um, network movies the other big dis- difference these days right is that first of all what is a network right I mean what what you know a network now the very meaning of it has expanded has exploded their yeah. entertainment companies but the other difference is that everyone now um, is novelizing or serializing but also the other big difference is that are so many of these channels what we used to call channels right are actually spending tons of money making movies for instance right so, they, so even the movie industry now looks very good now i will argue that to me at least you know there is a I don't know what it is, but there's a big difference between a movie made by a network like Netflix and a movie movie. I feel like there is still a difference. I don't know what that difference is. No, there definitely is. Right? Netflix looks expensively cheap, if that Exa- makes sense. Oh, that's so brilliant. Yes. Yeah, Thank it you. makes no yes. sense. I, I, I was think- watching Rebecca and I thought that, you know, because the old Rebecca is the, you know, black and white. Yeah. Have, and it's brilliant, right? It's, I mean, I think it's brilliant. It's fantastic. Right? I love that movie. It's fantastic, but he does so much, right? With so little, including no color, as I recall, right? Yep, but then yep. you get this massive thing. And at times I was watching the new Rebecca and thinking, this looks like a really expensive Star Trek episode from like the 2000s. <laughs> yeah, it's very weird. It's like, it's expensive <laughs> Lifetime yes. movie or something. There's something yes. so weird. But yeah. they use real directors from the movies which makes it even stranger like I know. they'll have people like David Fincher 
who yeah. will like come in and just do stuff and it just looks really cheap. It's you know, weird. and I th- yeah, and I think everyone's attitude is the same towards Netflix, right? It is studied contempt. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, it, is, it is. Yeah, sure. You want my name on this prestige thingy job that you're going to make me do? Give me tons of money, and then I'm going to go elsewhere and make the movies I really want to make, or at least go, you know, like retire to Barbados or something. I remember, like, there were certain logos or certain like uh, title screens that when you saw them, it was like a stamp of quality. Like, you know, like in the seventies, if you saw like United Artists before a movie, you knew that was going to be like a a good movie or something and whatever. And I remember the eighties used to be these TV shows that would have at the end of it, like sit Ubu sit. And for some reason, Oh yes, yes. I I know. Yeah. Yeah. Every Mm -hmm. show that had that for some reason was always good. And I feel like that little red end is like the reverse sign of like <laughs> lack of quality like yes. whenever i see an announcement and then i see a little red n in the corner i know to lower my expectations yep you know just be ready to have a second screen open be ready to be on the internet <laughs> to be on twitter to be texting like right i do my knitting uh, and i do the kind of knitting that requires real concentration <laughs> so it's just in the background right yeah, ne- yeah netflix is great to work to like you it know, really is it really is there's so little that captivates your imagination or your mind yeah i was trying to do this thing uh at the beginning of the pandemic of like trying to be more mindful and be less like distracted and less add so i was doing this thing of like i read this thing about like like monotasking like do one thing at a time yes and i made the mistake of trying that with netflix and it was <laughs> it was no. really painful to give my <laughs> undivided attention to it i never realized like it's almost mm-hmm. to me designed to be watched with the it is second screen I think so. I think Netflix is basically made for mobile, you know, not yeah. even like I'm very old fashioned. I, I mean, I tell myself that's because I'm a, you know, a critic, but I'm very old fashioned. I have an actual TV set um, on, you know, on all of that. And so I don't actually do my viewing on computers and screens and such. But even with that, with Netflix, I'm just like, oh, OK, where's that cross stitch pattern of mine? <laughs> you know, or even where's the crossword puzzle I was working on? Um it's yeah it's not um it doesn't transfix you it doesn't interest me it's yeah it's just there's this show and the pacing is horrible Uh, there's a show called jupiter's legacy that i Mm. didn't want to see it but uh it got canceled Mm. and you know people said and it it apparently cost like two hundred thousand dollars or something and everyone was like how the hell was it so expensive so I, i got curious i'm like why is everyone so surprised that it costs so much so i turned it on and to the disagreement you know with everyone else uh i strongly disagree it looks very expensive it's just it looks expensive in the way that like a tacky nouveau riche person's outfit can look very expensive but it's like mm. garish and horrible mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah like it, it looks terrible but it definitely looks expensive but it's a case of we have all this money but we don't know how to how to how to actually use these things like it's like cgi like movies with good movies with good cgi you don't know that they're cgi it's almost like uh, plastic surgery like there was Mm -hmm. a movie uh fury road that everybody thought had pure practical effects and i saw behind the scenes making and apparently a ton of it was cgi but the director george miller was very mindful of what is cgi good at and what can't you do it's not good at faces it's not good at Mm -hmm. people it's not good at natural movement but it's very good at backgrounds it's very good at providing texture to things so they only use the cgi for things that cgi was good at Exactly. But but not whereas this Jupiter's legacy thing, they were just using like someone just got the box with a CGI toy and it was <laughs> going wild in it and using it on everything and it looked looked horrible. Yes, yeah, yeah, no, I can see that. Yeah, but um Scott Rudin, right? To give an example, um I know someone who got approached by him, uh, you know, to work with them. Is it before he had his like fall from grace where you know where people said he was like an abusive asshole and stuff? But um he was told don't sign or do anything with that guy because that guy just um, is going to try to get your stuff made into movies, books, novelizations, whatever, and just try to extract as much value out of it, you know, for for a cut and then like uh, toss you away. But his model has become the norm because he was one of the first people, I know in 2013, he got like, there was this debut novel called City on Fire. I don't know whatever 
uh, happened to the movie that's supposed to be made about it. But Scott Rudin, Rubin, he scored a film deal for the book before the book contract was even in place. Wow. And yeah. stuff like that. And it was like a crazy thing. And there were people like, this is not normal. This is nuts. Scott Rudin is uh, the best producer or genius ever. But fast forward like years, and I feel like in Deadline Hollywood, a variety, there's an announcement like that every week. Mm, right. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess we're talking about, right, exactly. the That strange relationship between publishing and we can't even call it just a film industry anymore, right? The whole entertainment industry, which also extends, I, you know, I'm, we aren't yet seeing it. Perhaps I'm not really part of the gaming world so much, but there's always been, there's also that connection, right? So yeah. um, it really is about getting viewers, getting eyeballs, getting, uh, yeah, and I actually, you know, it's, the thing is, I think that if, if we lived in a world where there was a lot of entertainment being made that was actually entertaining, I'd be fine with it. But having, for instance, just watched the, what is it, Dead Army, what, what is a new zombie movie made by the guy who made... <laughs> oh, Justice League, Zack Snyder. Uh, um, yeah, what, what is a zombie movie, which I wrote a review of because I was, and I said I was only obsessed with the zombie's breasts. Uh, <laughs> which I was just like, why does a zombie have such incredible breasts? Uh, and that was my big takeaway. Anyway, that army of the dead or whatever, you know. But it wasn't even, the beginning was great. Like the, the introductory segment was great in terms of just the the, the music and, and the sequence was really fantastic. The rest of it is just bleh. But so I don't have a problem even with, you know, our movies all just being made to entertain as well. Good, that's fine. You know, we need more entertainment, but the entertainment isn't even very good. It's not engaging. It's condescending sometimes, or it tries to be, you know, I find this whole idea that somehow, like, I can't really, I, I don't do very much with the Marvel Comics universe, for instance. I, you're not supposed to call it the Marvel Comics universe. What does MCU stand for? Oh, it's a um, Marvel Cinematic. Cinematic. Uh, do pardon me. Yeah, you're not but, even but, supposed but it's, to it's use so the word because people know what you mean. I'm <laughs> <laughs> yeah. honestly, I've, I've been saying comics for, I'm like, no, it's cinematic. Oh, okay, pardon me. And we're not even supposed to say comics anymore. They're graphic novels. I'm like, no, these are the comics I grew up on. So shut up. They just have bigger muscles, you know. <laughs> but um, but even like the MCU movies, I just can't bear them because they're so, the only one I like, and I can watch it like every day, right, is Thor Ragnarok. That is the only one of the lot that I like. But the rest of them try so hard to be meaningful. I'm like, it's a freaking comic book. It's okay to, you know, be silly and be entertaining. Um, so, and I think the same is true in terms of books and the ways in which the major book reviewers in particular treat books or even, you know, which is, does this book have a socially, you know, have a meaning that's about social justice for instance? No, it doesn't. It's actually a book about, you know, this kid who runs away, blah, blah, blah. It's fine. Um, but yeah, so I think what we get are these very portentous, pretentious movies and books now that aren't really, you know, traditionally literature has not been about social elevation. That came along the way. Literature has always been about, can I make someone read me? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Very, it's a very simple task, right? Like, <laughs> and, even, and even like the highbrow stuff wasn't always necessarily being no. socially conscious. It might no. just be about psychological um, right. exploration of you know a bored housewife or something mm -hmm. but that didn't necessarily mean that it was feminist so something like madame bovary today like people try to say you know oh they, they try to defend it by saying it's a feminist novel and the problems that it got was because it was such a feminist novel but i mean it's the 1800s in france i mean it wasn't yeah. really it doesn't have to be a feminist novel to be good right. or respectful right respectful to right. women or worth you know exploring at least the things like um gone girl which is like a movie i enjoyed i i uh, yeah. found it enjoyable to watch but a lot of people especially like a lot of guys too in media like a lot of blue check guys i noticed were trying to be very performative about hating the movie and they were like oh you know this movie is like an incel mra guy's wet dream and be because the woman was uh, such a piece of work and it's like no it's okay to have a terrible character like mm -hmm. every movie or book about a woman doesn't have to be either feminist or misogynist it could be right you know neither 
Right, right. Yeah, no, I, I had a similar feeling about the Clove Hitch Killer. I don't know if you've seen this, uh, but it actually stars, uh, what's his name? Dylan McDermott. Very different Dylan McDermott from what I remember. And, you know, not to give anything away, but it's basically about a, a, a conservative, very conservative Christian family. And the kid starts to wonder about these murders happening in their small Kentucky town, right? And, you know, some of the reviews were like, well, but, you know, the, the filmmaker could have taken the chance to make a comment about this conservative Christian lifestyle. And I'm like, they show them at the breakfast table holding hands and, you know, they show them being conservative Christians. Why do you need some, perhaps some third person chorus or something to show up? And mm. tell you how to think about this conservative Christian world. So, so basically, actually, basically, they wanted somebody to remind you that they're bad yes. people. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, and the, and the movie does a great job with the complexity of this world without hitting you on the head with it. And also, the movie is actually supposed to be a kind of a mystery. It's not setting out to be, you know, uh, an exploration of the psyche of conservative Christians. It's literally a murder mystery that happens to be about conservative Christians. So, yes, I mean, I know what you mean. Yeah. But anyway, those are the issues we face. Yeah, but everything that gets announced now in publishing has a deal or a streaming deal already announced. Mm -hmm. There's always yes. like a 12, 15, 17 house bidding war for for the stuff. And um, one theory that I was wondering if, if it was true or not, I'm not sure yet, but I was looking around and um, I was thinking about this because of comic books, right? And with comics... There used to be like a comic industry. I've mentioned this before on the on the podcast, so pardon me if you heard this before. No, but, no. but you know, like with the comic industry, I mean, it was a comic industry, and that there was two or three or four or five companies that did nothing but comic books. Like that's yeah. all they did. They rose or they fell on if they could sell comic books at a profit, and that mm -hmm. was it. You know, uh, they weren't optioning stuff that was very rare. You know. Um, they had a little bit of licensing. By the end of the day, it was a comic industry. But now just about every comic company is owned by somebody. You know, mm -hmm. it's so now it's not really a company. It's a department. But people still talk about all these things like they did in the old days because it's almost like habits. People talk about network TV as if that's an industry. But it's really just ABC is just department in Disney. Uh, NBC yeah. is a department in GE, which is not mm -hmm. even an entertainment company. You know, like... It's not even like entertaining entertainment companies even own the smaller entertainment companies. So it's kind of like you have these business bean counter types who have bought publishing houses. I, I feel yeah. like, like with comics, the comic doesn't have to make money because Disney just cares that the comic part, which is Marvel, is yeah. creating enough content that will feed the movies, yeah. which is where they make their real money. Like, like the comic books are basically just treated as mm -hmm, mm -hmm. a content farm. And I was wondering if you think yeah. that's happening maybe to um, big publishing, because I noticed there's very few standalone book companies anymore either. Most of them are owned by conglomerates. Right. And stuff. Yeah. I think there's just about maybe a handful. I, I don't know the exact number, but I'm, yeah, I think in a few years, there'll be like two if you're lucky. And then the year after that, there'll be one. Uh, yeah, but, but even even the few that are left, how many of them are standalone? Like I know, like right? Bert, no, they're not. They're yeah. not. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think actually that's a good point, and I think that is exactly perhaps it explains why, for instance, uh, you know, you sent me a link to the Rupunian cat person short story that became so popular on the New Yorker side, um, and the book itself. You know, she got a massive deal. I don't know what seven figure means because I always wonder. Well, what's the number before the, all the zeros? Yep. But she got a massive deal. It certainly confirmed that the book did not sell. Um, it was also a lousy short story. And but the thing is, she doesn't have to worry about that. So you were asking me early on, right? You were asking me about um, questions around like licensing and so on. So I suspect, for instance, if you look at that case. You sent me an email, uh, you sent me a, a link that um, took me to a story about how the, that really badly written story has just been taken up. Um, let me just make sure I have all the details right. It's going to become a psychological thriller. Um, Susanna Fogel will direct the psychological thriller from Studio Canal and Imperative in Entertainment based on the short story. So I think, and this is a report from The Hollywood Reporter. So I think what's interesting is that this is a case of exactly what we've been talking about, which is to say, 
that it doesn't matter, the quality of the work doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that the book that is that includes the short story that she wrote, which you know, the short story that became so famous, etc. It doesn't matter that the book didn't, you know, sell any copies as far as we can tell. What matters is that she has managed to spin all of that. And, you know, all power to her. Look, writers don't get paid very much. Take the money and run, right? She yeah. obviously has a fantastic agent. And probably she and her agent are both extraordinarily creative and have been working on these. I suspect this deal has been in the works for quite a while. And so what she's done is she, she's managed to sell the basis of her story to a film company. And she's obviously making a lot of money that way. She's also incidentally part of Hollywood in the sense that I think she's, I figured what she, she does screenplays for various shows and so on. So she's already got her finger in that entertainment pie. So this is an example of kernel of something, which is to say the book or the short story is, isn't actually what's selling. It's not even particularly good, but it gets you tons of money because based on, you know, all the hoo-ha around cat person, she struck this deal. And again, I'm pretty sure this deal has been in the works for a while. So I think that's an example of exactly what you're talking about in terms of the comic book industry, right? Which is to say, or, you know, the movie, um, the quote-unquote entertainment complexes that have sprung about, which is to say everything is a division and everything is about, uh, you know, what can we sell, what can we make money off? And as far as, you know, the writers are concerned, like I said, you know, if Kristen Rupinian, if I think, you know, she's set for life, I imagine, right? with all the money she's made. Good for her. Good for her. Take uh, the money and run. But <laughs> this is what we're getting is we're getting bad fiction. And <laughs> one thing that was weird about the book, right? Like, I will say this. I mean, or, or the story. I don't think it was the best written story. But it was in, awful. In the world. Yeah, it was, it was awful. But one thing I'll say about it, she really read the room. The, the, yes. the, the figurative room as in like to yes. it was made for twitter like it was absolutely it was she so and, made yeah. to go viral yeah you, you know, know that edit yeah i'm sorry i'm just so excited to hear you say yeah yeah yeah, because, yeah exactly but i've been saying this you know i'm like you know the editor took one look at that and said this will get us eyeballs it hit the zeitgeist so well at that particular moment the whole Me Too movement, all of that, it came at exactly, the, it's, it, those things can only happen, you can never really predict those and you can never really craft those. That shit just happens without warning and when it happens, it happens. And yeah, I think that it really, yeah, absolutely. What you said is absolutely correct. Yes. Yeah. If if Jezebel, the website, had a fiction segment, that would have been their yeah. inaugural yes. inaugural yes. installment. It was so perfectly yep. made for... Yeah. But, but here's what's interesting about her, right? Um, her father's a medical doctor. Her her mother's right. a retired nurse. She, yep. she graduated from Barnard, but also has a PhD in English from Harvard mm -hmm. and an MFA from mm -hmm. the Helen Zell's yeah. writers program at University yeah. of Michigan. So that kind of surprised me, like that type of pedigree to produce yeah. what was basically, you know, a viral piece of social media fiction. It was, it was, it was kind of interesting to me. I, I was kind of surprised mm -hmm. that, that she had mm -hmm. all that pedigree to kind of just produce something that was um, so cash grabby and stuff. It was, mm. it was. Right. I would argue that that's actually what allowed her to do it. Uh, I don't know. I feel like maybe I've written this in my head, but I know I've written about her in a couple of pieces and about her background, her educational and her class background. See, the thing is, it's only someone with that class background who has the resources and who can get the people who will direct her to these kinds of opportunities. Yes, I agree. You know, so anyone else without that back, right, um, Harvard, her parents, all, I mean, you know, it's not like they're millionaires, but they're extremely comfortably well off. She goes to the, you know, the kinds of schools where you develop excellent networks and so on and so forth. Exactly. Right. She was probably introduced to the New Yorker editor by someone in her background, in her network, for instance. And it's only those kinds of people who can get these kinds of deals. It doesn't, I mean, long, gone is the days of long ago when someone like, say, Stephen King, you know, to, to use a cliched example, but someone like Stephen King did not come into writing with that kind of a background. And today he probably has enough money to buy at least six mid-sized small European or small European countries, 
you know, the newest ones. <laughs> so he has, you know, he's made, like he's, I think he has said, like even he doesn't know, I think his wife takes care of all of the stuff, but he said, I don't even know what I have, right? But he's just making money hand over fist. But gone are those days because now the class structure of the publishing world, it's also about, it's very different. Also, you could no, you can no longer be a quote unquote writer anymore Unless you have either sort of a quirky background, I forget her name, but there's a woman who is very famous for her tweets. Um, and anyway, the, you know, there's so has, many these days. That are right, there are so many these. But this is someone who doesn't have a college degree, so she's a bit of an anomaly in that sense. Uh, but there was something about her tweeting which I, you know, I can't remember now the details. But other than that, most people have uh, MFAs. A lot of people even have PhDs in writing. That was very controversial when it, first of all, the MFA for a long time was very controversial, right? It has this long history of like, why do writers need MFAs, et cetera, et cetera. And then some, at some point, you know, the, the academy came up with this idea, well, why don't we go ahead and also have PhDs in writing? Uh, so there's that. But a lot of people now, writers, in fact, you can't really teach writing anymore, really, in academia if you don't have a terminal degree in, in writing. So there are all those institutional reasons why, and also economic reasons. So who gets to go to college in the first place, right? Who gets to take out loans? Who gets to go to Harvard? Yeah, it just, it just those, creates more gatekeepers. Yeah, absolutely. More gatekeepers. And it's all, a lot of it is based on class, on access. It's also based on where do you live. I have a friend who was told by Verso uh, that he needed to travel. This was, mind you, for an unpaid internship. Verso put out a call for an unpaid internship. They required anyone from outside New York City, Brooklyn to be precise, <laughs> the kingdom of Brooklyn, as a friend of mine likes to call it. They required them to come to New York for the interview, for an unpaid internship. Oh, wow. So, you know, when Verso, which pretends to be the social justice lefty publishing house, which publishes you know, it's sitting on. I, I'm, you know, it's sitting on a shit ton of money because Verso, as you know, um, makes a lot of. I'm assuming they make a good amount of income on the fact that they have this massive back catalog, right? It's like having the Beatles in your back pocket. They have they have these uh, French philosophers, a lot of critical theory. That stuff sells really well every year because there are always thousands of graduate students across the world who need those, right? So Verso is not, you know, a struggling, poor little independent. Um, uh, publishing house, but Verso would not interview people if they didn't show up in New York. And of course, what that meant, as we know, is, you know, so who was going to show up for those interviews, right? People in New York City itself. And um, so, yes, I mean, that's what, you know, a lefty press does. So why should we expect anything better <laughs> from places like, you know, um, whatever the big names are right now? I, I have to, I, the reason I don't name them is not because I'm scared, but I'm just like, I don't know which one is which anymore. They've all sort of incorporated into each other. It's all just a one big giant spaceship. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so those are, it's very class inflected, I guess is my point. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, um... It's definitely that. What is interesting about these these institutions as well is that they're very good at justifying their own existences because they have the reach and power to do so. So it's kind of mm -hmm. like it's similar to how like lawyers create their own work. Like they create a lot of the the problems and laws that you they need to hire lawyers for. Like <laughs> people ask, hey, why do we need MFAs or why do we need PhDs in writing? But you know, once Harvard and you know has a phd in writing or whatever sure enough a lot of people who didn't need it before mm. and they're hiring are going to convince themselves that they need it and i'm sure a lot of those people might be from harvard themselves so that's the way of giving back to the university as well so yeah it's it's exactly what you said like a lot of these things end up becoming um necessary even though things are fine without them and i think these institutions know that they have the reach and the power and the networks and the uh, um alumni to make themselves mm -hmm. necessary and normalize whatever they whatever they want so so yeah it's um what are people going to do like uh if that's the only way they can get in they'll take out money hand over fist and go to these places and sadly if you do make it into the right credentialed place it might be a good investment the problem is uh compounded though when a lot of these um 
lesser schools, not lesser in quality, but lesser just in reputation, start following suit and making their own versions of these programs that are only maybe a couple thousand dollars less a year than Harvard's, but have no chance in hell of delivering you the same career mm-hmm. results, you know? It depends on where you're located. It depends on whom you know, et cetera. Yeah. Exactly, exactly, yeah. I mean, and the other big problem is, I think the other big problem, frankly, is that writers as a community are incredibly resistant to the idea of establishing a more equitable landscape. And I say this because I've often asked writers, you know, there was an editor a while back who, um, it's in the name and everything is in one, in a couple of my pieces, but he once proposed that, you know, we sort of give all writers, he was writing an essay about uh, Lena Dunham's massive advance that she got for her book. And he said, you know, instead of doing that, why don't we give everyone, say, you know, an average of, say, $100,000, right, which is enough for a right. Now, I would argue 200000 because what people, I, I don't know why he didn't pick he didn't factor this into his calculations because um, your agent gets a cut. Also, no one, very few people that I, I, I don't know if anyone who actually gets the entire um, advance up front, you don't get your whole 200,000 up front. You get it in often in quarters. If you're lucky, you get it in halves. So, you know, I would argue because a writer needs time to write, you know, enough money to say pay rent and plus incidentals. I would say, let's say more like 200,000, right? Advance, which you have to earn out anyway. So it's not like you're giving them freebies. Give them a $200,000 advance and let that be kind of the sum that everyone gets. Instead of splashing $6 million at someone simply, you know, simply because she's a quote unquote big name, and never actually recovering that. I also don't know what the logistics, I have to figure this out. But anyway, the point being, writers didn't didn't seem particularly enthusiastic about that. Probably because a lot of them everyone, think they're going to be the one. Yes, everyone thinks they're going to win the advance lottery. Yep. Everyone yep. wants to be seen as that writer. And the thing is, the chances of that are so minuscule, and the percentage of people who get those kinds of advances is so tiny so why not, you know, and again, I feel like a lot of issues in the publishing world actually are the problem being, are because of the problem that writers historically have seen themselves as these sort of, you know, magical fairy children. You know, they don't think of, the, they don't want to think of their, if I, for instance, were to tell a, a certain, and I've, this has happened to me very often, where I've said, you know, writing is work, and if you want, writing is actually labor, and there's all of this pearl clutching whenever I say that, because a lot of writers want to think of themselves, first of all, they're very comfortably well off. They're either married to someone with money and health insurance, or they have a day gig, et cetera, et cetera, or they have parental money, et cetera. But a lot of writers don't want to see themselves as workers. They don't want to see writing as labor. They want to see writing as something special and magical that will transform the world. And it may, who knows, right? But but they're also um, very <laughs> idea in love with the idea of writing as a romantic identity. And yes, I, yeah. yes, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And also, you know, the, yeah, all these. I mean, I know so many writers as well, exactly, who also uh, <laughs> like to portray themselves as "quote unquote" the starving artist, blah blah blah. And it's like you're not starving. You're you you know you you have like you have money you can go back to anytime you want. Uh, I'm one of the few writers I know who actually makes their entire very hard living, I might add, from writing, period. So, um, yeah, but writers don't want to change the landscape either, and that's a problem. You know, creative writing, like, I grouse about writing and payment and all of that, right? I'm a nonfiction writer. Creative writing, there is no money. Like, no one pays a poet. And I think poetry is damned hard. I mean, it is one of the hardest genres, I think. Poetry is such a hard genre, but poets don't even, like, there is no question, except for a few exceptions, there's just no question of anyone getting paid for poetry or fiction for the most part. Yeah, and, you know, thinking back to what you were saying about not wanting to think of writing as a labor, I I remember, and I feel like it's kind of, fallen off a little bit but there was a time where everybody fancied themselves like a closet novelist and everybody had like a couple <laughs> yes. of chapters of an unfinished novel right. in a drawer somewhere and you know 
it was one of the very popular things you would find with like what people call it like like a basic like you know like the kind of girl who had a like a poster of france in her in her apartment <laughs> you know or, or paris but has never been there uh watch sex in the city all the time and whatever and she always like fancied herself like uh a writer and there's like the male version like the brooding guy mm-hmm. who thinks he's so interesting and yeah. every banal thought is like uh worth writing mm-hmm. down or whatever and i feel like that's kind of like disappeared from writing to a certain degree and at some point yeah. becoming a either an improv or a stand-up comedian <laughs> or a sketch writer has become the new way to become a mm. public intellectual i think post stephen yeah. colbert's post John Stewart, like everybody who wants to break into uh, even writing, like every freelance writer I see now is is either a POC or is queer and does stand up comedy or improv. And also, here's wow. my twelve bylines. At so, so I think it's a certain degree, like uh, writing's almost become maybe even more rarefied or something. Like mm. everyone has just moved on to like other. All the casuals have moved on to something else. <laughs> right. I feel so old-fashioned for just wanting to write. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I mean, and to be honest, um, you know, I'm also exploring a few possibilities, but nothing like, you know, I, whatever. Again, you know, I think if it's a question of, because writing is so underpaid, um, I just feel like writers should do whatever they need to do in order to fund themselves and their lives, right? And their, and their writing. Do whatever the hell you have to do. Uh, my problem is with when they those. W- my problem is with writers when they resist the idea of work needing to be paid and paid well, which is a weird sort of, um, which is a weird ideological position to take. But that's also because so many of them, I think, you know, don't need money to, you know, the the writing is not what what funds their lives. So that's my issue. But the other problem I have is really with the system as well um and the system sort of feeds writers you know i I think writers and the system sort of feed each other you know the the system keeps telling the writers you know if you just listen to us and if you just keep on at it one day you too will get this you know seven-figure deal um and writers in the me and and they and i think that's what allows the publishing industry you know the new yorker right is still as i understand it is still going through its unionization uh process so the new yorker does not have a right, you know, the writers of the New Yorker are not unionized. Like, what the fuck? Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, I think all of us were like, wait, are you saying that the New Yorker is not unionized? Perhaps we should have all have guessed that. But I think it did come as kind of a shock to some people. And then, you know, you read, all, and then I found out, for instance, just after I had started my subscription to Harper's magazine, I found out that, you know, the the writers there are not only not unionized, they were made to come into their workplace by their publisher, who is this millionaire who I don't think has been vaccinated. So he floats around the office, much to the panic of his writers without a mask, etc. I mean, wow. horrendous writing conditions. But again, to become a writer at Harper's pretty much opens up your you know your 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 world to to all kinds of possibilities i guess but the publishing world is a fucking mess i feel like everything that people do now is made on the intern the free internship model you know where it's like hey it's gonna pay off later trust us just keep uh swallowing swallowing crap so you just keep ending up with um like you described the paid and in, the unpaid internship, but you know, you get your underpaid first couple of jobs and just people are just hanging on and hoping to go viral on mm-hmm, Twitter mm-hmm, and get mm-hmm. a following that's going yeah. to, uh, yeah. so, so I feel like there's a couple of things. You either have to have some kind of nepotism, some credentialism, you know, that, uh, ties you into a network. So you went to like the right schools and you have, have like that great network or, and I think this is the new democratizer, the big equalizer is, um, to be an influencer that's the way mm-hmm. to get around mm-hmm. the system like okay it's too late for me to go or i'm unable to uh, go to school yeah get a harvard phd or a um iowa writers workshop mfa or whatever i can't do all that but i can tweet and if i mm-hmm. tweet enough 
and right. you know, get enough of a following. But the problem with that, I find, yeah. and some people have said this to me uh, themselves. We had a guest who actually said that, you know, she thought she was going to tweet her way into journalism or to do something <laughs> important, you know, which is, she said it wasn't actually a bad idea because a lot of people were um, doing just that. But what she realized was if she ever was to make it succeed and if she did, uh, you know, tweet her way into um you know, serious publishing, she realized my skills had all atrophied because I was writing, the writing yes. I was doing for... Um, Such an excellent point. Yeah, she was like, the writing I was doing for my journalistic endeavor was a content farm. So she was writing for a content farm and tweeting, and she was getting a following from both, but she mm -hmm. said like she was realizing that mm -hmm. um, if she ever did get the chance to make mm -hmm. something long form, uh, she didn't... Those muscles mm -hmm. had, had uh, yeah. atrophied. And I feel like that's the way, way it is with all the people who are doing that influencer angle. Like, they're really, really good at self-promoting, at getting people to retweet them, at, uh, you know, making connections through that. But when they actually get a chance to write, it's just not very good. And an example, and I don't want to keep beating up on this person, but it's the best example. For the longest time, I'd been seeing uh, Roxanne Gay's name bandied about. <laughs> For, you know, as being like this great feminist writer or whatever. Then when I discovered her on Twitter, I was like, how can the person writing these tweets be this great thinker and writer? I don't understand it at all. And I said, you know what? Maybe the way she tweets is not how she writes long form. Maybe uh, she just tweets dumb. But when it's time to sit down and write, she taps into some kind of inner reserve of introspection <laughs> and talent. So I went and I got... Uh, bad feminist and it was just read it was it was written like a giant tweet thread it was just a really long tweet thread um like mm -hmm. five or six tweet threads basically that, that was what the book was did you read the whole book uh no after right after because, two yep, segments yeah. i couldn't do it i couldn't do it anymore there was one about the main the main topic bad feminist and then there was another one about competitive scrabble and and Buffy fan fiction. And I was like, oh, I can't do this. <laughs> you went further than I could. You know, uh, I tried as well to read that book and I couldn't. So Roxane Gay is probably the world's worst, most famous writer I can think of. I mean, she, she's a, a savvy mine, operator. She's a damn savvy operator. And she's a shitty writer and a friend of mine whom I will not name because they will get crucified in public and they don't need that. A friend of mine once said to me, has she ever written a sentence that are, that's above a third grade level? And I think the answer is no. Uh, so Roxanne Gay is terrible. Um, but again, it's about, it's again a confluence of things, right? Roxanne Gay, she, you know, her various identities, her, and also I think her selling of her trauma, etc. I think that really resonates with people over and over again, at least up to a certain point. So there's that. But I think I really am interested, especially, yes, in what your friend has said about journalism and not being able to use those muscles. Um, and I think, you know, I've, I was watching someone who is one of the Substack, um, what do we call them, heroes or whatever, you know, who's gotten a lot of money. You know, you know how Substack has chosen, right? So yeah. a few people to whom it pays quite a great deal of money. Uh, to produce writing and of course Substack otherwise operates like HuffPo used to and what Medium used to which is everyone else keeps doing it for free in the hope that they get those kinds of huge contracts and I was watching someone whom I will not name slowly really in a way disintegrate because the only way to kind of justify to Substack and to yourself that kind of massive amount of money which again let me emphasize this if you're a writer, you're working in a field that's often very underpaid, take the goddamn money and run, right? But I think what I was watching this person basically disintegrate, you know, and I, I haven't followed them recently, but I think they're still disintegrating in public because the problem is when you have that kind of a model, you have to keep being this very public personality. And that comes with a lot of mental, how do I frame this delicately, you know, it comes with a lot of mental issues. If you're constantly in public and you're performing yourself in this weird way because you need to keep getting people's eyeballs to your writing, which in its, you know, and your writing slowly also deteriorates. And I think our comrade David Parsons of Nostalgia Trap put it really well in a tweet where he said, you know, Substack is basically surviving on the mental illness of its writer, Ooh, right? It's causing them to have, tweet. yeah. 
Yeah, it has. Yeah, it is. And uh, he put it much more succinctly. But he basically said, you know, what Substack is doing is causing people to have nervous breakdowns in public. That's the fucking model. And yes, yeah, so there is that. There's I because I have heard people actually say, well, you know, I became a well-known writer because I had all these flare-ups in public, etc. I'm like, no, you didn't actually, because you're not a writer. You're just someone who has a lot of flare-ups in public. And that's really not good for you and is not good for your writing. But what your friend said about long-form journalism is also really interesting. You know, I was, for a long while, I was the world's um, oldest cub reporter. <laughs> I began my journalism career a few Years after I was even done with grad school, I began writing for Windy City Times, which is now, I think, the only gay paper in Chicago, and even if that's gone online. But at the time, Windy City Times was one of maybe two or three actual physical gay papers in the country um, and, in, and in the city. And when I started writing for them, I first started writing op-eds, and I realized, you know, I don't write, I hate writing op-eds. So I started doing reporting for them. And so I was the person because I was lowest on the on on the pole. I was sent out, you know, to cover like some tiny little reception on Western Avenue at eight p.m. on a Wednesday night, right? And I learned it. You know, I didn't go to Jane School, but I learned it all from the bottom up. And I had excellent editors who taught me. You know, this is how you cold call. This, these are the questions you ask. Here are the how you address ethical conundrums, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I'm still learning in that sense. So. But that journalism requires a different set of muscles and a different relationship to things like sources and calls and so on and so forth. And what you have, I think, are a lot of people who think, who forget that. And yes, exactly that. Those muscles have to be exercised very differently. And in fact, they have to be exercised away from the Twitter machine. Because if you're a journalist and you're trying to cover a story that's, you know, de developing, let's say, in Hyde Park, where I live right now, you really have to do a lot of navigating of people who live in your community and want you to speak, quote unquote, for them. And while at the same time, you have to maintain your sense of integrity in terms of, you know, having to actually think about what all the issues are around an issue. All of that, none of that can happen on Twitter. And in fact, Twitter will ruin you, will ruin your skills at all of that. All right, y'all. So that is the end of part one. Go to, again, patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two. Be good. <laughs>